Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the Bible, for the salvation that is freely given to us in Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we come to better understand how we can take advantage of that gift, may your Holy Spirit be here. May he be the presenter, and may he custom make this message to meet the individual needs of each one of us here. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to study with you the second most repeated story in the New Testament. The second most repeated story. Now, what is the number one most repeated story? Well, it happens to also be the most important. The story of the crucifixion is repeated in all four Gospels, and of course it is alluded to many more times throughout the New Testament. But what is the second most repeated story? Anyone want to venture a guess? Some people might say the birth of Jesus, right? It's actually not the birth of Jesus. If the title of the message is any clue to you, that's probably the best thing I can tell you. The story is repeated three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. And we are going to be looking at the Acts 26 account. So turn your Bibles there with me now, if you have your Bibles. Acts chapter 26. And the second most repeated story in the New Testament happens to be the conversion story of Paul. The Apostle Paul, who once was called Saul, and I'll just make this confession now. This story, we're going to be discussing Paul, pre-conversion, when he was called Saul, as well as the Apostle Paul, which is post-conversion. And you understand the difficulty of keeping those two straight. So Paul, Saul, forgive me if I mix them up. You know, if you want to nitpick, you know, it's probably going to happen. I'm going to call Paul or Saul, Paul, before he became Paul. I'm probably going to call Paul Saul after he became Paul. Okay. Just get that out of my system. Forgive me if I confuse you, but they're the same guy. So, let's read the story together. Acts chapter 26. Paul is before King Agrippa. He's been imprisoned, and he is now giving a defense of himself. And um, let's just begin in verse 7. Unto which promise are twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. So he's leading into this story now. Verse 8, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10 is where the story really begins. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison? having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Verse 11, And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. You see the picture of Saul, the persecutor. 
This was before he became a Christian, when he was still of the, uh, the Pharisee of the Sanhedrin. He was not a nice guy. Verse 12, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. Verse 14, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is a hard thing for thee to kick against the bricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So here we see the familiar story depicted by Paul, the road to Damascus experience. There he was on the horse at noontime, and bang, a bright light comes, knocks he, him, and all of his companions off of their horses, and in an instant, this conversation in the light did not take a long time. In that instant, in that moment, that brief encounter, <clears throat> we see Saul becoming Paul. In almost what seems like a split second, in a moment, Paul was converted. He went from a fire-breathing persecutor to being an apostle of the man whose followers he had been putting to death in one short encounter in the light. Now, what about that light? What's so significant about the light? Let's look in Revelation. Keep your finger in Acts 26. Look in Revelation with me, chapter 1. What's so special about the light? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13. The Apostle John now is writing. He says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the foot, and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. So he's describing someone that he sees. He sees <coughs> the Son of Man in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He goes on to describe the physical characteristics of the Son of Man. In verse 16, he says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, which is also his face, was as the sun shineth in his strength. So John sees the face of Jesus, and his description of the face of Jesus is that it is shining like the sun. And the Apostle Paul, or Saul, in the road to Damascus, he sees a light that is brighter than the sun. And how does he know it's brighter than the sun? Because he's out in the middle of the day, at noontime, at midday, and he sees a light that's brighter than the noonday sun. 
And in that encounter, we know that he saw Jesus, and we know now, Revelation 1 tells us, that the light emanated from the face of Jesus. You remember Moses, when he saw God face to face, he comes down, and his face was aglow with the light of God. Stephen, and we're going to come back to Stephen, when he was giving his defense, they say his face shone as though it was an angel. And here we see Saul has an encounter in the light that shone from the face of Jesus, and instantly he becomes a different man. Instantly he's converted. Instantly he changes course 180 degrees, and he goes from persecuting to being one of the persecuted. So here's the question. Here's the question. What happened in the light? What happened in that short moment in time that converted this fire-breathing persecutor And what lesson does it have for me? Because if somehow God can change someone as against him as the Apostle Paul in the span of such a short time, surely he can change me. Amen? So what happened in the light? That's that's the question we're going to try to answer in the balance of our time together. Three things happened in the light. Three things that happened in the light. Number one, in the light, Saul was convinced. Saul became convinced in the light. What do I mean by that? Let's think together (coughs) a little bit about what Paul believed prior to his conversion? What was his understanding and his level of belief in this man named Jesus Christ? What did he know and what did he believe about Jesus? Well, let me ask you, did Paul, Saul, did he believe that Jesus was a literal, physical human being who lived in Israel? Yes, he did. It's not until later on in history that infidels and skeptics begin to revise history in the attempt to say Jesus is a mythical figure. He never really existed. That was not an issue for Paul. He knew Christ, or Jesus rather, was a real physical human being. He could not deny that. Okay, now, did he believe then that Jesus was an influential teacher? Of course, because why else would he be persecuting these people who claim to be followers of Jesus? He knew and he could not deny that the teachings of Christ had influence. So, what about those teachings? Did Paul disagree with? all of Christ's teachings? Or did he actually believe a lot of what Jesus taught? Did Jesus teach the law and Moses? Yes. And does Paul believe in the law and in Moses? You better believe it. Did Jesus teach about the resurrection? Yes, he did. And Paul, as a Pharisee, believed in the resurrection. Did Jesus teach that we ought to live a holy life. Yes, he did. 
and Paul, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, believed in living a holy life. Did, <coughs> did Jesus teach the authority of the Scriptures? Yes, he did. And doesn't Paul believe the same thing? You can go down the list of teachings that Jesus taught, and there are very few things that the Apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, would disagree with him on. Now, what about this one? Did Paul, prior to his conversion, did Saul actually believe that Jesus Christ was nailed on the cross and crucified? Yes, he did. He could not deny it. No one could deny it back then because it happened on Passover. There were witnesses. Everyone saw it. There was a triumphant entry. Saul could not deny, like so many of us sophisticated atheists today, say Jesus really wasn't a real person. Jesus never really died. And certainly he never resurrected. So Saul, we can conclude safely, he was no atheist. He was not an individual that had in his mind all of these philosophical arguments to say Jesus didn't exist, that Jesus did not teach the truth, that Jesus did not really die. He could not deny any of that. So the question is, so what did he not believe? What did he not believe? Look Look with me, or listen, to what Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White, page 116, what Ellen White described. Going through Saul's experience. The Savior had spoken to Saul through Stephen. You remember the experience. Stephen, before he was stoned, he was giving his testimony, and then all the men gnashed on him with their teeth, and they laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul before they went and stoned Stephen. So Saul was there. So it says, the Savior has spoken to Saul through Stephen, whose clear reasoning could not be controverted. So Saul knew that Stephen's reasoning, his logic was sound. He could not debate it. The learned Jew had seen in the face of the martyr, or rather, seen the face of the martyr, reflecting the light of Christ's glory, appearing as if it had been the face of an angel. There's that face shining with light again. There's something here. Keep that in mind. He had witnessed Stephen's forbearance toward his enemies and his forgiveness of them. All of these things had appealed loudly to Saul and had at times thrust upon his mind an almost overwhelming conviction that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And at such times, we are told, he struggled for entire nights against this conviction. And always he had ended the matter by avowing his belief that Jesus was not the Messiah and that his followers were deluded fanatics. So in that last sentence, we see the one piece of the puzzle that Saul was missing. The one thing that he didn't believe, he believed everything except this one thing. That is, he simply did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. That was all. Jesus was a real man. Jesus taught the, <clears throat> what the Bible had to say. He believed in Moses and the prophets. 
Jesus had a following. He was an influential teacher. All of these things, he agreed with him on a lot of things even, but he simply could not believe, could not accept that Jesus Christ was the Christ. So what does it take to convince a man of that? If he saw Christ resurrected, then he has no more leg to stand on. And what happened in the light? Wasn't that precisely what happened in the light? Saul looked up and he sees the resurrected Jesus. And that's why in one instant, it didn't take a long time of going back to his textbooks to study things out. He didn't have to form a committee to discuss this. He didn't have to uh, remember all of the things that he had said about why this wasn't true. He saw Jesus resurrected and all of a sudden, all of his arguments melted. And in the light, he realized immediately, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. In the light, he was convinced. He was convinced intellectually now. He knew that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah who has been foretold. Now, that's all nice and good, but there's a question here I think deserves answering. And that is, if he had heard Stephen's testimony... And if Saul, which I believe was an honest person, intellectually honest, and he saw the logic of Stephen, why did he not believe beforehand? This is what it says, Acts of the Apostles again, page 113. Not without severe trial did Saul come to his conclusion. There are three things that are listed here as to why he rejected Christ as Messiah. Number one, But in the end, his education and prejudices, his respect for his former teachers, and his pride of popularity braced him to rebel against the voice of conscience and the grace of God. Three things. His education and his prejudices. Number two, respect for his former teachers. And the third thing is his pride of popularity. Mercy, that sounds like me. (laughs) Have you ever gone through the experience where you are faced with a decision, but you all of a sudden go through in your mind, I can't do that. I have a degree from Southern Adventist University. I was taught this in my class, my Bible class, or my science class, or my philosophy class, or my history class, what would my teachers think of their A student if I believed this now? I can't do that because it would be embarrassing. Or maybe culturally, oh, my family, what are they going to say? We were brought up this way. We can't do that because what would they think? And of course, the respect for former teachers. Perhaps as an Asian, this is more of a problem than for the independent-minded Americans out there. But the respect for elders, right? Oh, I can't do that. It would shame the family or whatever. But what if the truth required it? 
Are we going to be like Saul, fighting against the truth because of this inertia of education, our prejudices, the respect for former teachers or our parents or elders? And the final one that really sealed the deal for him was his pride of popularity. You remember Saul, he was a rising star within his party. He was a young man on whom the Pharisees pinned all their hopes and dreams. And there was this thing called peer pressure. What about all my friends? What about all these guys that I'm close with? What will they think of me if I admit it to them that now I believe in Jesus? Can it be that these same three things are what keeps us today from fully embracing the truth? Are these three things the, th- the things that truly keep us from living the life that Christ calls us to live? We worry so much about what the other people will think that we would rather lay sleepless at night fighting the conviction of the Holy Spirit rather than lose our face with our friends. In the light, in the light, Saul became convinced. And along with that conviction, he realized the truth is more important than education and prejudices, than the respect for my former teachers and my elders. It's even worth losing my reputation over with my peers and with my friends. In the light, Paul was convinced. That's number one. But guess what? Being convinced is not enough. I was a Bible teacher once in high school, and I had a lot of A students in class. But guess what? Having an A in Bible class does not prove that you're a converted person. Just because you understand and are convinced of the facts and can spill it out on a test does not mean you are converted. So what else does it take? The second thing that happened in the light, Paul was convicted. And now what do I mean by convicted? Convincing happens in the head, in the mind. Conviction happens in the heart. Look with me back in Acts chapter 26, verse 14 again. And when when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying, in what language? What language? There's about two people awake out there. What language? Hebrew. Hebrew. Okay. You didn't even need to look that up. Come on. You guys know that. Okay. Okay. So Saul heard the voice speak to him, but it wasn't just the voice speaking to him. He actually goes to the length to say it was in the Hebrew tongue. What's so significant about that? You understand at this time in history, the lingua franca, the language of business was Greek. The New Testament was even written in Greek. But Paul was a Hebrew. And what language do you suppose he spoke at home? What language do you suppose was the language that his mother spoke to him in? 
How many of you here speak a, a second language? Probably a lot of you. And how many of you, English is not your language that you speak at home? Okay, a lot of you. So you understand when I say that there are certain things that cannot be expressed outside of that language that you use at home. Right? Would you agree with that? And if you're like me, I'm Chinese. I come from a Chinese family. And we speak multiple dialects. And in our home, we don't just speak Chinese. We speak our own unique mixture, concoction of the different dialects and a few English words sprinkled in. And we have our own language at home. You understand what I'm saying? Some of you probably know what I'm talking about. At home, you can use certain phrases, certain expressions that nobody else in the world would understand except you and maybe your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad. You've got your own language. And it's just like this. When I'm out and about, you know, say I'm out with my parents, with my mom, that's probably the best example. You know, we can converse and we can carry on in English. But when there's something on her mind, she speaks to me in the language we use at home. She calls me by my Chinese name. And of course, you got to listen for the tone of voice, right? <laughs> the different tone of voice will tell you if it's something bad or something good that's on her heart. And in the same way, Paul here, I just imagine he's telling King Agrippa this, and Agrippa happens to be a, a very familiar with the Jewish culture, if you study it out. And Paul explains that I heard my name called out in the Hebrew tongue. And he might even reflect back and say, it's not just the Hebrew that you hear in academia. It was the same accent, the same dialect, the same unique idioms that we used in my home in Tarsus with my parents. I heard Jesus speak to me with the language of my home, the language of the heart. Because what was Jesus trying to do? Jesus was not trying to reach Paul intellectually. He's like, ha-ha. I'm alive. I've resurrected. You were right and I was wrong. Ha, huh? so change. That's not the point. The point of this interaction here, Jesus was trying to reach the heart of Paul. And he uses that language that Paul instantly recognizes as, ah, that's the language in my home. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And now imagine back when you were a child. And you're at home and your mom comes to you. And she has this sound in her voice that without her saying very much, you know that she is very disappointed. That you have done something that you should not have done. Can you remember that feeling? When your heart sinks, there's a knot in your throat. And maybe when you're, if you're really young, the tears start to well up. You're like, oh no, what did I do now? And you hear your mom call your name in that sweet tone of voice, my son, my daughter. That emotion that you feel, that was what Saul felt. That was exactly what went on in his heart. He realized Something bad has happened. 
something has gone wrong. And he hears the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you persecuted. What happened when those words sunk into the mind of Saul? What do you suppose he felt when he hears the voice of the very person that he had been fighting against? In that instant when he realizes, when he realizes that I have been doing all of these things in the name of the glory of God, in the in the effort to vindicate my God, to defend the faith, to be a faithful witness, to be doing all of these things for my church, and I'm going out there and I'm just giving it my all, and then now he realizes everything that he's been doing has been hurting the very God that he's been trying to serve. The very person that he had devoted his life to He is crushing out his spirit. He is twisting the knife in his back. And in horror, in horror, Paul realizes what he has been doing with his life. In that moment, he realizes that he has been a traitor to the God that he had vowed his life to defend. There's only one word I can use to describe that. He was broken. He became broken in that moment. Because up till now, Paul could defend himself. He is a fire-breathing defense defender of the faith, and he's going to go out and do whatever he needed to take care of business. But now he realizes... Everything he's depended on, everything he's, he's leaned his weight on now is crumbling before his eyes. There's nothing left. What good am I? I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. Everything I knew to do actually had been against the God I've been serving. He was broken. But at the same time, he recognized that in that same voice that called out to him with a discouraged or disappointed tone, that same God, in that tone of voice, was giving him hope. He realized that Jesus Christ could have killed him instantly, but that's not what's happening. He realizes that this God whom he had been fighting against is actually here to save him. And in that moment, Paul realized that there is nothing left he can do. Absolutely nothing which he can depend on for his own salvation except Jesus Christ. It became clear, abundantly clear to him that his own righteousness was good for nothing. His own efforts led him to persecute Jesus Christ. But yet this same Jesus has come down and called his name using his language and has reached into his soul and in the same instant where he crushed his his stony heart, gave him the hope that there is still a life and a future for him. 
I like how C.D. Brooks says it. He says when he looks at himself, when I look at myself, I don't know how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't know how I can be lost. And can you imagine that feeling when Paul in that moment, laying down on the, on the ground, on the road, he looks up and in one side he says, I'm a dead man. After all I've done, I'm a dead man. But then as he realizes Christ is here to save me, He's here to pick me up and set me on the right course. Hallelujah! How then can I be lost when He will save someone as wretched as me, the chief of sinners though I be? In that moment, He was convicted. It reached the heart. He realized, I am saved because of the mercy and the compassion and the grace of Jesus, not because of who I am. Because I've been persecuting the man who wants to save me. Christ reached down and he broke Paul. So that as a contrite, penitent man, he might have that salvation for which he had tried to work so hard for himself. Christ reached his heart. Paul was convinced in the light. Paul was convicted in the light. In his mind, now the facts are straight. In his heart, he is now bound up in the man Jesus Christ. But one last thing happened in the light. And it also starts with C. In the light, he was commissioned. In the light, Paul was commissioned. Verse 16 Verse 16, it says, But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen, and of those things which I will appear unto thee. Earlier, Jesus Christ says, It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Now, what does that mean? In other translations, it says, Kick against the goads. G-O-A-D. Well, a prick or a goad is a pointy stick used to guide cattle. The cattle ranchers, they use them to poke the oxen to make them go the direction where they want to go. And it reminds me of another, another place in the Gospels where Christ actually uses an illustration of cattle and ox and an oxen. He, he, he says, take my yoke upon you, right? Learn of me. My yoke is easy and my burden light. You see, all of this time, Christ had been trying to direct the Apostle Paul, or Saul, to become the Apostle Paul. To go in a certain way. To face a certain direction. And Paul was resisting, resisting, resisting. How do we know? He spent whole nights sleepless against conviction. That's someone who's kicking against the pricks. And here, Jesus lifts Paul up. He says, but rise. You have fallen on the rock and you are broken, but now get up. Get up because you have work to do. You have now a message to bear. What you have been convinced of, what you have been convicted of, go and tell the world. And verse 18 is very significant. To open their eyes. And to turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith 
that is in me. Notice what Paul is supposed to do now. He saw the light from the face of Jesus. He saw the light being reflected from the face of Stephen. And now Jesus says, go, open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light. The light that convinced you. The light that convicted your heart. The light that now shines on your pathway as you embark on this gospel commission. Go share that light. Bear that light to the world. Open their eyes. Go preach the gospel to every creature. And after that, Paul, or Saul, became the Apostle Paul. He became a converted man. A converted man who was convinced, who was convicted, who was commissioned. And this is the same Paul who says, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So what does it take to be converted? What have we learned in that story of the light on the road to Damascus? What does it take? It takes all three. It takes being convinced. It takes being convicted. It takes being commissioned. These three things put together result in conversion of the character and of the Christian heart. Sometimes we try to get one without the other. You know the, you know the feeling where we know all the facts. We know what the Bible says. But without that heart brokenness experience with Jesus, there's no fire. There's no endurance. There's no stamina in the Christian life. We might know one thing, but we live and do another. And sometimes there are those whose hearts are just completely melted and with zeal and with passion, but they don't know anything. They go out there and they don't know the Bible, they don't know the truth, but they're just on fire, and sometimes that fire fizzles out and they end up in fanaticism or they end up doing some crazy thing because their, their roots are not in the Word. They haven't been convinced but they just simply have the fire of conviction in their heart. And perhaps the worst are sometimes those who feel compelled, commissioned, but they have no message to bear. They have no experience with Jesus, and they just go out and they end up causing a lot of trouble. But we need all three. We need to be convinced. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know what the three angels' messages say. We need to know what the final events are going to be. We need to know what the message of warning is that we've been given to tell the world. We need to be convinced of it, but that must be combined with that constant experience, like Paul says, where we die daily, recognizing every day that we are no better than Saul on the road to Damascus about to hunt down more Christians. To recognize that our lives, as we make these, commit these sins, whether willingly or unwillingly, that we are yet persecuting Christ, crucifying Him afresh, and to recognize there is no good thing in me, but that Christ lives in me, do I have a chance in eternal life. And of course, to live the life fulfilling the gospel commission, 
to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. A converted person is a missionary. And if we are not living a life in which we are burdened with the salvation of souls, perhaps there is still a piece missing in our conversion experience because it takes all three. So as we conclude here, I invite you to turn to our final text of this message. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, our scripture reading for the day. Written by the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. He writes, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some of us might say, Yeah, Paul. Nice for you to say, but the light that you saw on the road to Damascus, I wish that would happen to me. That doesn't happen here anymore. God doesn't shine his light, knocking us off our horses like he did back then. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What did we just read? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it says, God has already commanded the light to shine out of darkness into our heart. With the same power that spoke light into existence, he has spoken the light into our hearts through the word of God which has been preserved for us that we can hold in our hands today. That same light, the same light that is contained within it, the potential power to convert the worst of sinners. Christ is shining in our hearts today. So have you seen the light? Have you seen the light today? Perhaps some of us in this church today, we are still struggling with some aspects of the truth. Maybe there's something about the Bible, something about the doctrines, something about the teachings of righteousness by faith and salvation that we are not fully convinced of. Maybe there's something that we need to be convinced of. Have you seen the light? Are you willing to look into the light for that truth? Maybe others of us, we know the facts. We know who Jesus is. We know what the doctrines teach. We know what the Bible has to say, but we have trouble living the right life in Jesus. We struggle with that con conviction every day. We're not really consecrated to Jesus and we need that brokenness that Paul experienced. You, we need to be convicted in our hearts. Have you seen the light? And are you willing to fall on the rock and be broken? And maybe there are others of us who we know God is calling us to something for him. He's calling us to some line of ministry. He's calling us to minister to that friend, that family member, that coworker. He's calling us to some activity for him, but we are resisting. In the light, Paul was commissioned, and God, as also through the light, is trying to commission us for his service. Have you seen 
the light. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want that light to shine ever brighter and brighter in my dark, dark heart. Don't you? I want to be converted fully and completely to be a new creature. How about you? Let's pray. Father, this morning, this afternoon, as we have spent a few thoughtful moments investigating the conversion of Paul, Lord, we desire that experience for ourselves. Shine that light from your word into our hearts. May we be supple. May we be malleable. May we be able to understand and to be convinced of the facts and the truth that you wish to teach us. But Lord, may you speak to us as you spoke to Paul. Speak to our hearts in exactly the way that we need to hear, that we might be broken, that we might recognize that Jesus Christ is not just the Savior, that he is my Savior. And Lord, strengthen us, gird up our loins, that we might become active soul winners, ministers for you. And strengthen us to that end today. Bless us as we continue on the Sabbath day. And may we truly ever grow brighter and brighter into your likeness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org